Zechariah. So we've been in Zechariah for a little while. I want to reiterate, I've said this many times, but when I committed to, to preaching through Zechariah a few months back, I did it for a couple of main reasons. The first one, again, that most of us don't spend a lot of time in minor prophets. Many of us probably had not ever read through Zechariah before. Uh, so it would just be a good way to expose us to maybe portions of Scripture that you're, you're not terribly familiar with. Uh, but more importantly than that, uh, I knew that as we got to Zechariah, and, and I think this is true of, of most of the minor prophets, we're, we're going to see really clear pictures of Jesus in them. Surprisingly so. I know that a lot of times when we're not familiar with the Old Testament or particularly obscure books like Zechariah, we don't expect as Christians that that's where we should go to look for Jesus, right? We think, well, we'll go to the Gospels, we'll go to the New Testament, but he is the center of the whole Bible. He's all over the scriptures. And certainly we see him in texts like Zechariah. And specifically, uh, this chapter that we're looking at today here in chapter 9 was probably one of the, the, the biggest reasons why I, I wanted to, to say this is a Christ-centered book. I, I wanted us to come here because I knew we'd get this picture in Zechariah 9 that you are familiar with. And it's actually in uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9. If you look there for a second, you read this text every Easter time, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Danny read that to us as we began our service this morning. And of course, we know that that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ at the triumphal entry, at the beginning of Holy Week, right before his crucifixion. That's where that, that prophecy came from. It's right here in Zechariah chapter 9. So again, this is, a, this is a passage I've been looking forward to because of that obvious connection to Jesus. Having said that, though, I will also say that the rest of the passage around those verses in chapter 9 and into chapter 10, and frankly, pretty much the rest of the way through, they're tough. They're difficult, and I've wrestled with them a lot and sort of felt like in sorting through what's said in these chapters, it's sort of like opening a box of jigsaw puzzle pieces. You know, when you, when you open up a box of puzzle pieces, you can look at a piece and you can kind of maybe make out, I, I think I know roughly where that comes from. Like there's an eyeball here, that's part of the face, or there's a flower here, that's part of this picture scene over here. But, but then you look at the jumble of all the pieces together and, and you go, this... This just looks chaotic and confusing, right? That's kind of the way I felt about going through this text. Uh, I can sort of look at different pieces of it and get a sense of what they represent, but trying to put the whole thing together is kind of challenging. So as I'm wrestling with that, I feel like the Lord just sort of uh, gave me a new paradigm from which to, 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 to make sense of all of it. And it's really this. It was sort of like thinking about a suspense thriller movie. And maybe you can relate to this. You ever seen a movie where uh, there's different scenes to the movie and they're, they're all like, they're all sort of, you, you wonder how they fit together, yeah. right? Like it, you're, you're sitting there, maybe you're in, you're in the theater, you're watching the movie and, and, and there's these flashes from this scene to that scene and you're, and you're wondering, you're looking around, am I the only one who's completely lost right now in this movie? And then somehow at the end of the movie, it, it, something happens and it all comes together and you're like, oh, that's what all those scenes were about. That's what it was all pointing to. It makes sense now, right? A scene, uh, I think of a movie like Seven Pounds with Will Smith or, or a, a movie like The Sixth Sense where it's, it's at the end, you're like, oh, that makes so much more sense. That's kind of the way I felt with this text. Uh, so, so I want to say that hindsight is sort of 2020 when it comes to Old Testament prophets. And I, I'm just telling you that to prepare you that over the next few minutes, as I'm explaining some different scenes, you might be trying to go, how is this all going to come together? How does it center around chapter 9, verse 9, this idea of Jesus coming to his people, coming to them as king, but also coming to them humble and mounted on a donkey. This is what's going to all come together and make sense in the end. So, the great suspense thriller of Zechariah 9 and 10. Are you ready to dive into it a little bit? Remember, the whole thing centers around your king is coming to you. 
Let's look at the first scene. As we think about the arrival of this king, the first scene that God wants us to get is this. This idea that this coming king is a king who will defeat all rivals. He's a king who will defeat all rivals. And I, and I might subtitle this point like this. God has fulfilled his word in the past, so we can surely believe that he will fulfill it in the future. All right? God is a king, this coming king, who will defeat all rivals. Now, you notice that as we've gone through Zechariah, there's been lots of different points along the way where we've, we've heard God talking about the judgment of Israel's oppressors, the judgment of their enemies, of his enemies. This time, though, he gets very specific about how that judgment on the nations is going to play out. Chapter 9. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. Now, Hadrach is, a, is a, uh, uh, like a, basically an idol, a false god, right? And Damascus is the place in which this idol rests. So he says, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against this land in Damascus, for the Lord has an eye on mankind, and he has an eye on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise... Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. All right, you go, boy, there's a lot of words in there that I did not understand. I get this sense that God's angry at a bunch of people with hard-to-pronounce names. What is this all about? All right, so what we've just read here is a, a battle plan, a battle campaign plan, that sort of runs in a straight line from the north area above Jerusalem in Damascus all the way down the Mediterranean coast to almost where Egypt would be in Gaza, right? And you, you hear about Gaza in the news today. Yeah, I, I hope you get some kind of a mental image of, of where that is and sort of the, the southern coast of, of, of Israel, right? Uh, but you get this plan where God is saying, basically, I'm going to start in this north area, and all these different cities are mentioned that are along the coastlands in this region all the way down, and God is saying this is where the judgment is going to take place. Every one of these cities is, is this stronghold. Every one of these cities represents, again, the oppressors of Israel throughout history. Uh, we're talking about the, the, the people like the Philistines, right? This is, this is their territory, and God is saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to, to prepare the way for the arrival of your king, Israel, by beginning with judging all of these foes, breaking down their strongholds, all right? Now, I want to explain how this is such, a, uh, it's, it's such an amazing picture here. It's such an amazing text. Because the people of Zechariah's day, they didn't know it yet. We now know that they were still about 500 years away from the arrival of that messianic king. Jesus was still 500 years from being born at this point. However, these verses were actually fulfilled to a T about 200 years after they were written here in Zechariah. And they were fulfilled through the arrival of Alexander the Great. As you, as you look at uh, different commentators and different scholars and they look at these texts, they say, this is one of these places in Scripture where you can see a clear fulfillment because when we look back on history and we see Alexander the Great, who was this great Greek you know, ruler and military uh, 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 leader, we see his conquest in this area follow this plan 
to a T. So what is God doing here? God is preparing a way for the arrival of the king of Israel, the Messiah, by fulfilling his promises of first judging Israel's enemies. And I want to tell you a couple of stories about how this played out under Alexander the Great, uh, under this headline. Again, God has been faithful to fulfill his promises in the past, which gives us great confidence that he will fulfill every promise in the future. So just a couple of stories that I hope will just sort of be an encouragement to you. Specifically to look at these verses against Tyre. Uh, the city of Tyre uh, was indeed a very wealthy and, uh, and, a, and an impregnable uh, stronghold. They were actually built in sort of two areas. There was sort of the mainland of Tyre. We're talking about in modern-day Lebanon, this mainland city that had primarily been moved offshore to an, a little island that was about, about a half mile off the shore. So there was still some of the old port in operation on the mainland, but, but really the main center of the city was now on this little island. And this little island was surrounded by a wall that was 150 feet tall. And there were two of those walls, about 25 yards apart, and those, the in-between of that was filled in with dirt. So you have this incredible fortified city that was just full of gold and silver and wealth and pride because they knew no one's going to be able to take us with these giant walls and we're out here in the middle of the water. And that indeed had been true. That city had been tried to, to be taken by the Babylonians and they failed at it. In fact, it, for 13 years, the Babylonians had tried to siege Tyre and didn't, weren't able to, to take it down. Uh, similarly, the Persians had tried to take Tyre and they were not able to take it down. And so for God to give this this uh, prophecy here that says, Tyre, you're going to be not just taken down, you're going to be scraped bare. You're going to be, uh, you know, basically thrown into the sea. That would have seemed like a, a big promise. And, and, and the people might have wondered, like, how is that really going to come about? But when Alexander the Great came down, he knew that Tyre had this history of withstanding these, uh, these sieges. And so he told his soldiers to take the, the mainland city and basically scrape it into the ocean. If you uh, lived in Chicago long enough, you might know that pretty much all of Streeterville exists today because of the great Chicago fire. That used to be lake, right? And yet all the, the burnt rubble was pushed into the lake and it created new land. And that's where, you know, Navy Pier and all that stuff is. Like, it, that's all on scraped land that got put into the, into the lake. That's what Alexander the Great's army did to the old city of Tyre. They scraped it into the ocean and they basically created this channel out to that island and made it no longer an island. They made it a peninsula. And you can look to this day. It's still like that. It's called Alexander's Causeway. It's, it's not an island anymore. It's a peninsula. But they scraped the old city and they created this bridge and they were able to march their armies out there. And within seven months, they'd taken that city. Now, while they were doing that, Alexander sent delegates to go to Jerusalem to seek some supplies, right? We're trying to take Tyre. We need some help. Send us some supplies. Well, the, the priests in Jerusalem said, no, we're not going to help you to do that. And so Alexander basically said to himself and to his army, all right, when we're done here, we're going there and we're going to wipe them out. But what happens here? Look at the, at the last verse here, uh, verse, verse 8. He says, then the Lord says, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. There's a promise here to Jerusalem that you're not going to get taken. I will guard you. There's a historian named Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish Roman historian. He's probably the most prolific uh, historian when it comes to the, the history of Israel. He lived in the first century. Uh, and he writes the account of what happened when Alexander turned his attention towards Jerusalem. We're told there that, that he came to the city, he brought his army with them, and while they were on their way, the, the high priest in Jerusalem was basically given a vision by God, given a dream. And in that dream, he was told, look, 
Alexander's on his way. Don't be afraid. Decorate the city with wreaths. Open the gates wide. Tell all the people to dress in white and go out there. Send out the, the priest in their priestly robes and greet them and meet them. Welcome them to the city. And of course, the people would have thought, this is crazy, right? Alexander's like killed everybody. But that's what they did. And they went out there and they waited. And when Alexander's armies arrived, according to the historian Josephus, Alexander saw that scene and he stopped. And he told his army to wait. And he alone went and met with them and came back and told his army, turn around, we're not taking this city. And the army was like, what are you talking about? What, 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 what just happened? And, and Alexander told them, I'm not sparing this city on account of them, but on account of their God. Because before I began this whole journey that we read about here in Zechariah, this whole military conquest, this God came to me in a vision and told me to do this conquest, told me that he would give me victory. But when that God appeared to me in that vision, he was dressed just like those people are dressed right now. And so he believed that that God who gave him the authority to do this was also the God who was telling him to spare his own city, Jerusalem. That's a, that's a historical account of Josephus. That's, that's not from the Bible. Josephus wasn't a believer. But that's the best historical record we have. So I know that's a long story, but I'm telling you this as an encouragement. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And he demonstrated that to his people before the arrival of the Messiah and so every other promise that he gives us in this chapter, we can look back on the beginning and go, he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now, he'll be faithful still in all that he's yet to fulfill. God is the king who fulfills his promises. Why was it so important for Alexander the Great to, to put down Israel's enemies? Well, a couple of things. One, it, it, it really did prepare the way for the arrival of the messianic king. By Greece coming in and conquering all of these different empires that had held down Israel for so long, Greece was able to, to, to spread a language in the world, the Greek language, that would finally unite people together under one common language. And then, of course, the Romans came in, and the Romans created a political environment in which citizens of Rome could freely travel. So that when the arrival of Jesus would come about, there would be a common language and an ease of travel for the message of the messianic king to begin to spread throughout the world. God was preparing a way for the arrival of his king. And these aren't, I know these are military conquests, and maybe sometimes that's hard for us to understand. Like, like you know, was, was God just sort of doing some ethnic cleansing? Was he, was he against certain nations and not others? Uh, no, I know that's hard to relate to, but we have to understand that this is not a national or an ethnic battle. It's a spiritual one. God's people existed as a nation in the Old Testament, right? They were the nation of Israel. Their enemies and oppressors were national enemies and oppressors, but they're always presented to us as spiritual enemies, right? These are the, the false gods, the false idols, the satanic, demonic strongholds that have oppressed the people of God, and this is what God is promising to overcome. He'll prepare the way. He'll bring down our oppressors and our enemies before the arrival of the king, through the arrival of the king, and in the reign of the king. Remember the theme here. Behold, your king is coming to you. So we have this glimpse as to, in the past, how God has fulfilled his promise. The rest of the text, again, is primarily looking forward to the future, to the reign of this messianic king. And that's the second scene that I want to take us to. The second scene is this. The coming king's reign will mean blessings for his people. The coming king's reign will mean blessings for his people. And this is really running from about chapter 9, verse 14, throughout chapter 10. We see this picture of this messianic king who's coming, and, and he's, he's sort of depicted primarily as a shepherd for the people of God. And these verses tell about his shepherdly care for his people. He is the great shepherd who will do certain things. 
And I'll just briefly run through them. I'm not going to read the whole text, but let me give you just a few of the things that it says to us. The first one is that he's the great shepherd who will save his people. He'll save his people. Look at chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Again, everything that we're about to read here looks beyond, looks forward to the sort of the eschatological kingdom, the last and final reign of this Messiah. And we see that in the beginning of verse 16 here with the phrase, on that day. When you see on that day, it's looking forward to the, 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 the consummation of the, the kingdom of God. We would say this is the second coming of Christ, right? On that day, when his kingdom is finally inaugurated, He's first of all the savior, the shepherd who saves his people. And the salvation spoken of here looks again forward to the ultimate salvation of God's people. It's not just a mere deliverance from a particular momentary trouble that's in mind here. It's not just a particular deliverance from, a, from an enemy here. But rather what we see here is an, an endowment of salvation that is upon the people of God. He will save them on that day. They will be endowed with salvation, a salvation that will encompass every aspect of their existence. He will make us his own flock, it says here, meaning that he will be our great shepherd who constantly cares for us, constantly provides everything that we need. And I love this imagery here. It says that, that they will be like jewels in a crown that shine on his head. I love this imagery because it evokes, at least for me, the picture of 1 Peter 5.4. As a pastor, I read a, a text like that, and, and I, I give a lot of weight to it. It says there that, that the under-shepherds of God's church, in other words, the pastors or the elders within the church of God, that if we, if we shepherd well, if we shepherd the flock of God well, it says that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So I think about that, and I, and I think about that in, in light of this passage about the messianic king, about Jesus. It says that, that we as his people will shine like the jewels of his crown along, all throughout his land. In other words, Jesus as the great shepherd always shepherds his flock perfectly. He's perfect in his care. And in that sense, we then, as his people, become his crown of glory. We shine brightly throughout his coming kingdom, and we will shine throughout that kingdom forever, bringing glory to him, bringing honor to him, which is why I think it's written here, how great is his goodness, how great his beauty in verse 17. This reign of the king will be marked by the blessing of salvation for his people, and we will be fully satisfied. We will flourish under his reign and rule as his people, enjoying the satisfying abundance, abundance of his goodness. Again, grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. We will flourish. I love this too, of this salvation and reign of the Good Shepherd. One commentator said that it reminded him of Psalm 23, which he calls the most beautiful nightingale song, which is so precious to us now. But at that day, on that day, in that, that abundance of salvation, we will then express, uh, Psalm 23, I should say, will express the experience of us at all times as God's people. Psalm 23, you know this text. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beautiful words there that we can relate to at times when we, when we recognize now that God is our shepherd, when we find him to be that good shepherd for us, 
But he says on that day, you'll, you'll, you'll know that experience always, every moment. He's the good shepherd who saves his people. Secondly, he's the good shepherd who provides for his people. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. In other words, under the reign of the shepherd king, we will ask God for blessings, and we will always find them in him. He will always give them to his people. Everything we need, everything and more. I think of Ephesians 1, the the riches of his inheritance. Everything we need and more will belong to us in abundance. Your coming king in his ultimate reign will be a good shepherd who saves his people, who provides for his people. Thirdly, who purifies his people. Chapter 10, verse 3. He says, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. He will purify his people. His reign will be a reign in which nothing impure can harm the people of God. It says here that he is angry against the shepherds. It's talking about the the, the bad leaders that have so oppressed the people uh, th- throughout the years, whether it's governments or whether it's bad priests or bad leaders within the congregation themselves. So then on that day, my people will be cared for perfectly. I will purify my people because he loves us, because he cares for us. I was thinking about that, that particular promise this week in light of... Um, just a lot of conversation going on within the church, uh, particularly within Southern Baptist churches right now. And we're, we're not Southern Baptists, by the way, uh, but we are Baptists, and we certainly fellowship with Southern Baptist churches. There's a convention that they're all uh, heading to here in Nashville, and one of the big hot topics uh, for that convention, and that's a, I shouldn't even say it that way, hot topic, that, that sounds trite, one of the, the weighty topics that they're, that they're t- discussing is, uh, is, is abuse in the church, sexual abuse in the church, spiritual abuse in the church, and how the church, this, the SBC convention in particularly, has had a, a history of covering that up, of not dealing appropriately with it. Okay? And, I, and I bring that up only to say that that's happening now and the conversations are loud within the SBC, but it's not just the SBC, right? This has been a, a, a historical problem. There are bad shepherds in the flock. There, there have always been, and Jesus railed against them when he comes. And this promise about, about the future reign here is, is a promise of finality. He will remu- remove the abusers. He will lead perfectly because his care will be perfect we will be shepherded well under the reign of the king he purifies his people and finally he gathers and restores his people chapter 10 uh, look at verses 8 and 9 most of the remaining verses are about this but it says there i will whistle for them and gather them in for i have redeemed them and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. So he's looking at the, the exile of his people. They've been scattered around, but he says, I'm going to bring them all back. And they'll be as many as they were before. They'll remember him, and with their children they shall live and they shall return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and to Lebanon until there's no room for them. This is a beautiful picture, too, of, of what the, the messianic king is ultimately going to do. He's going to bring all of God's people under his wing, under his fold, into his fold as he cares for us, and as he saves us, and as he purifies us and provides for us. Some scholars would say this is, a, this is perhaps a fulfillment of Romans 11, right, where, where there's a promise 
made there, it's seemingly a promise made that all of Israel will be saved. Is this the fulfillment of that text where, where, where all of the, the ethnic Jews are going to be at the end, you know, brought to a point of repentance and belief in Jesus? I don't know. I'm not even sure that that's exactly what's being said in Romans, right? But what I, what I can say is this. There's certainly a promise here that every single person who belongs to Jesus, every one of his sheep will be brought home. Every single one of us will be brought into the fold. And I think about uh, Jesus talking about himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And nobody will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, he says, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Not a single one of his people will be left out or lost. So you get this beautiful picture in Zechariah 9 and 10. You've got these different scenes that are playing out. One has is, one is seemingly happened a long time ago in the past with the, 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 the conquering of the enemies of Israel, preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And then these, far, these other promises, are, they seem to be still yet to be fully fulfilled. These are, these are on that day promises, eschatological promises of what his ultimate reign will look like. And remember, again, the, the, the encouraging promise that's being given here, that the center of all this is that Israel, your king is coming, your king is coming, he's coming to you, he's coming to you. But the thing centers around what happens in the middle. It's this verse that we've looked at a couple of times already in verse 9. And, and this is the scene that brings it all together in Jesus. And here's the, here's the title of this scene. King Jesus will come certainly in conquering power. We're gonna see, we've seen that through the conquests of Israel's enemies. We're going to see it at the end when he puts down all of those spiritual enemies forever. He will come in conquering power, but first, he has come in gentleness and lowliness. Again, this is the center point and the theme of the text. Everything that we've we've read so far about this coming king and the reign of this king is even as good and as as, as shepherdly as it's been towards us, his people, it's couched in a lot of this sort of military language, this conquering kind of language. There's these powerful themes in these previous scenes that you would expect that when the, when the actual announcement of the coming of this king is given, that it would be accompanied by more descriptions of his power and his might, Right? The shock and the awe when this king finally arrives on the scene. That's what they would expect. That's what they did expect. But we get the opposite of what we'd expect at the triumphal entry of Jesus, don't we? Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And you think, so far, so good. That's what we expect. Rejoicing and shouting and, 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 and sort of this pomp and circumstance. Israel's enemies have, have been wiped out. Now comes in what every Jew was hoping for, the king. Not just any king, God's king. But you get this confusing turn in the middle of that verse. This king isn't like the ones described in the other verses. It says, righteous and having salvation is he, but humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why would a righteous king who comes to conquer his enemies come in a manner like this? Why would the conquering king come in a manner that is gentle and lowly? By the way, the words used here, humble and mounted on a donkey, are, are the same in the Septuagint at least, the Greek words used in, the, in Matthew when it talks about Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. Why would he come as one who is gentle and lowly? Here's the answer. Because if Jesus conquered all of his enemies, 
if he conquered all who set themselves up as his enemies, he'd have to conquer every single one of us. That wouldn't be good for us. But this righteous king is also the one, as we've already read, who possesses salvation. He possesses salvation. He comes as the gentle and lowly one first in order to save a people for himself by making his enemies his friends. Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we had set ourselves up as his enemies, that's when Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This conquering king He will conquer. He will wrathfully deal with sin. But for those who've been justified by his blood, we've been saved. Paul says, therefore, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Colossians 1, and you who once were alienated, who were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus comes as the gentle and lowly one to make his enemies his friends. He comes gentle and lowly so that he can be conquered so that you're not conquered. He's conquered under his own righteous wrath against sin. I want to ask you a question. Do you see God in that way? Do you see him that way? Do you see him as as this gentle and lowly king? Does that characterize your understanding of uh, Jesus' position as king? Or do you only see God as wrathful, and the conquering one. He's both. He's both. But I I fear that that often, and I I say this because I'm thinking specifically of of guilt and, and shame that we carry when we recognize that we have sinned against a holy God, that we've that we failed him in some way. I I see so often on our shoulders, and I'll say this for myself too, that the the picture of God the conquering one who came to, who's here to destroy his enemies, to, to pour out his wrath on sin, we, we can easily think of him that way. But do we, do we also recognize him as the gentle and lowly one who came to make his enemies his friends? Here's what he says about gentle and lowly in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That that idea of a yoke, that's authority, that's reign. He reigns, but he says, my reign is easy. My burden is light because I didn't come first as the conquering king. I came first as the gentle and lowly one to make my enemies my friends. I want to close today. I know I've gone a little long here. It's going to make me go a little bit longer, but I had to tell a couple stories. I told you the Alexander the Great story. Let me close with another story. I think you'll find it encouraging. I want to tell a story of an old man that I met here a few years back and who died a few years back. And the reason this story comes to my mind is because, you know, I was doing the memorial service for Fran Franz yesterday. I was, I was flipping through old funeral notes 
uh, and old funeral plans, and, and, and this one popped up, and I hadn't thought about uh, this man in a while, but his name was Marvin, uh, Marvin Harris. And I first met Marv in the fall of 2011, and I, I met him, uh, and I got to say, immediately sort of saw that his life was a, a pretty radical picture of God's gentle and lowly grace towards sinners. Here's how I got to know him. It was a Sunday morning church service here at Edgewater. I remember noticing him sitting right about where Elaine is sitting this morning. I, I noticed him immediately because I looked over there and, and he reminded me of, you ever seen Miracle on 34th Street, the Christmas movie, Chris Kringle? He looked like Santa Claus. And I was like, Santa Claus came to church today. This guy looked just like Santa Claus. So he, he, he caught my eye. And, 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 and after uh, the service was done, after I had finished my sermon, he, he immediately walked down this aisle here and, and he wanted to come up and introduce himself to me. And I think within just like the first two sentences where he said, here's my name. Um, and this is, you know, I haven't been here in a long time. It's the first time I've been here in years. He just started to unload uh, his burdens on me, just telling me his whole life story, very transparent and very weighty as he was unloading all of these things on me. And, and, and by his own admission, he was, he was telling me that he had lots of regrets, that he had a lot of regrets in life. He told me he wasn't always the most honest guy. In fact, he had gotten himself involved with some pretty shady characters, sort of mafia-type characters. Not too long before that, he had gotten caught in a scheme, and he was likely going to be in prison very soon, and probably for the rest of his life, at least he thought that, for committing tax fraud. And I think that, that sort of like began to shake him. The, he, he had a special needs son, an adult son, who lived with him, and the idea of, of being put, sent in prison and separated from his son, and the idea then of, of probably and possibly dying there in prison finally broke him of, of his pride. He was a scared man. And he's telling me all this, and he begins to tear up as he's telling me more. He, he says, I wasn't the best husband. I wasn't the best father. I've got strained relationships with my family and with my friends I've lived much of my life not knowing if I could trust anybody and certainly not being trusted by anybody else. And these are all things that he just admitted to me, just like the first time we met. And these conversations would continue every Sunday for the next several months. He'd, he'd come up after the sermon and he would, he would be in tears and he'd thank me for for, for, for preaching the word that morning, that morning and, and for talking about God's grace and talking about the gospel and forgiveness, but he was still deeply feeling guilt. Deeply feeling guilt. And he told me that the guilt was so strong that he would, he would leave here on Sunday and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every single morning, he was walking over to the neighborhood Catholic church and attending the mass there and praying that God would forgive him every single day. He still saw God as a conquering king. That's the only way he saw God. And when he told me that, I remember putting my my hand on his shoulder and saying to him, Marv, look, I know you've been coming here and you've been hearing the gospel every Sunday. You've been hearing me talk about the message of God's grace over the, the past few weeks, but I don't, I don't think you've grasped it yet. I don't think you got it because this guilt is crushing you. And I began to, to try, and I remember praying that the Spirit just, just, just open his eyes, open his, his, his mind, open his heart to understand like who Jesus really is. And I got to talk to him at that door about Jesus' death for him, Jesus' love, Jesus as the gentle and lowly one who came to make his enemies his friends. I, I shared the gospel yet again with him. And in that moment, I remember sort of seeing the weight of guilt lift off of him for the first time. Right at that door. And he was, he's crying as he always had been, but for the first time I see a smile break through his tears as if he was finally free. 
And I believe he fully trusted in the grace of God through Jesus that morning. And I think he left a changed man. I think the gentle and lowly Jesus met him at that door. And soon after that, I attended his sentencing hearing and watched him get carried off to jail. And I didn't see Marvin again for, gosh, over a year. About two months after his release, in fact, and he came back to church, but he only made it back about two more times before he died. But I know that when he died, he died in peace. He died knowing the gentle and lowly Savior. Because he had this saying at the end of his life, he would say this, he said, it's not the life you lived, it's the love you had. It's not the life you lived, it's the love you had. And that's one of the most profound things I've ever heard anyone say, but it takes a little explaining. I think what he meant by that was something like Paul means in 1 Timothy when he says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul could say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. But then he says, I received this mercy for a reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul's saying he, he took a, a, the, the, the worst of the worst like me as an example of his incredible mercy so that other people would see it. And I think that's what Marvin's life turned into. His final days were a display like that. When he was in prison, he made it a point to share the gospel with somebody every single day. And she did that, really, for the rest of his life. Some days he was unable to because he was sick. He was really sick. But he figured there were other days when he shared the gospel with more than one person, so it made up for the days that he couldn't. He enjoyed praying and studying the Bible with other inmates, and he was content if just one of them showed up and joined him for prayer. And he saw God answer many prayers, and one of the prayers that God answered was for him to be able to get released a little bit early. He was released in time to get home for one last Christmas with his son, Jesse. And again, he then was able to come to church just a couple of times before he died. And he came here and he, 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 he rolled down this aisle, now in a wheelchair, very frail. And he, he got to share in front of our congregation uh, just the, the story of God's mercy in his life. He got to share with us um, the beautiful picture of God's grace and what a gentle and lowly Jesus now looked like to him. And he got to tell us that he couldn't wait to go home to heaven. He was no longer afraid of God. He couldn't wait to be with him. Knowing that compels me to say with Paul in 1 Timothy there, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I have every confidence that when Marvin died, and he died on a good Friday of all days, he finally passed into glory and stood before his maker. He stood before the king. And when all the events of his life were unfolded, his sins and all, Marvin's Savior, Jesus Christ, the gentle and lowly king, stepped in front of him and boldly declared to the Father, it's not the life he lived, it's the love he had. And the love that he had was the deepest love of all. It was a love that drove a gentle and lowly King Jesus to a criminal's cross where he took Marvin's sins upon himself and died for all of them. And Jesus, I know, looked at the Father as he'll do for each of us who've trusted in him and said, his debt to you, Father, is paid in full.
And I believe that the father then looked at Marvin as he'll look to all of us who trusted in him and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master's happiness. You know, Marvin left a, a, a pretty significant mark on me and I know some of you as well and I hope his story today leaves a mark on those of you who have not yet heard of him or met him. The story of Marvin's life is a story that points to the goodness of the king. He's exceedingly good. He forgives the, the foremost of sinners. He gives us all the grace and peace needed to live a new and freed up life to face his righteous judgment with no fear. Just hope. Knowing that in Jesus Christ, the promises of Zechariah 9 will all come true. And I, I'll just close by reading again verses 16 and 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. He'll save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Father, I pray that you would help us to just believe that in our bones today. You are indeed a conquering king. You will set all of your enemies, Lord, in, in, in judgment. You'll lay them all down. You will, you will conquer. You will reign. You will rule. But Lord, help us to be able to praise you an expectant hope for that day because we know that you've also come and made us who were your enemies, your friends. Thank you that our king came and he came humble. He came lowly. He came to die for us. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters today, would they would see you for who you are, the conquering yet gentle and lowly king. Give us such a, a beautiful vision of you, Lord, that our, our hearts, like Marvin Harris's hearts, are forever changed. That we become a people who are joyful, who are able to rejoice on that day, saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. You are our greatest hope. You are our greatest uh, satisfaction. You're our greatest joy. Lord, help us to know you for who you really are. And thank you for who you really are. Lord, how great is your beauty. How great is your goodness. Lord, help us to sing now with full hearts as people who see you as great and beautiful. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.